If you're able to, I ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading from the Old Testament, one of the books of history, 2 Samuel, chapter 12. 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 15 to 23. Here now is the word of the Lord. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. He asked, Is the child dead? And they replied, yes, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead... You have stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive, for I said, Perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? And it was at this point that David said this very key sentence, which is the following. David said, I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Thank you. Please be seated. In this series of messages we've been working through called Issues and Answers, we've been dealing with difficult topics. This is one that is particularly emotional, a question that people have asked for many years. What happens to young children who die? To help us answer the question, the passage we just read deals with the death of the infant son of David and Bathsheba. Many of us know the story. But the topic is a very difficult issue. And so I'm going to do something that typically I don't do. I'm actually going to give you my my answer to that question first. And then we're going to walk through the process by which I reached that conclusion. I'm going to do this because it is so intensely emotional And I think that you do need to hear the different arguments and viewpoints on this, so I want you to hear them knowing what my stance is on the issue first. That being said, I personally believe babies, young children, unborn babies who die in the womb, whether from miscarriage or abortion, I believe they are all safely in the Lord's presence. I want to make that clear up front. So having covered that, let's begin looking at this issue as we attempt to gain a better understanding of what is often called the doctrine of the age of accountability. Now, a number of you may recognize that I have shared with you that one of the greatest struggles that my mother faced in her life, there we go, the greatest struggle that she faced in her life was a reality My mother was pregnant four times between 1953 and 1963. Only one of those pregnancies survived. That's me. 
She lost two before me. They were in their second trimester. The last one was in 1963. I remember that. I would have been four years old. And that baby died just moments before her first breath. She died in the process of being born. A few days after that baby girl died in the delivery room, my mother went to her minister to seek comfort and assurance that her daughter was safe in the presence of the Lord. However, the answer her pastor gave her sent her on a multi-year struggle that eventually landed our family in a completely different denomination. The reason is her pastor told her that that baby girl was in hell because she had not been baptized. In moments of profound sadness, people will wonder, are those who die in infancy or childhood lost because they've not made a profession of faith in Christ? Now, the same question applies to those who die in the womb. What becomes of them for eternity? Now, I want to be sure that I am not unfair to other denominations that have a different stance than many of us might on this. But if you were raised Roman Catholic, you're familiar that they have a doctrine called limbo. And it was a doctrine that was an attempt to provide hope that those children have received God's grace, and yet, while they do not face eternal punishment, they also are not in full communion with God. It's an often misunderstood doctrine, and Pope Benedict tried to clarify it in 2007. If you were raised Roman Catholic, you're probably familiar with the doctrine of limbo. But recently, I've studied this issue, and I've even looked particularly at statements made by a number of priests, and Pope Benedict's statements leaned towards this, and that's basically saying that they acknowledge that Protestants properly point out a problem with the idea of the doctrine of limbo. As Protestant Christians, typically we would say, God would not condemn those little ones to eternal punishment. And while I agree with that statement, I think we need to understand biblically why we would believe this. I'll also tell you that in 1995 and 1997, Terry and I lost two to first trimester miscarriages. We never doubted God would provide for them in eternity, but we were rather unequipped to understand the biblical basis behind that, at least at the time. A few years later, in conversations with my mother, I learned my parents could not explain why they believed those babies were safely in the presence of the Lord. Essentially, they believed it because they so badly wanted it to be true. There are probably people here today who have struggled with this matter. It's often an unspoken pain nobody's willing to talk about. I hope to offer some clarity and some assurance on this and why I do believe this doctrine of the age of accountability is the best explanation of how God works. So what we end up with is something that's known as a, a theological construct. You say, what's that? Well, we don't have a direct proof text one of the strongest ones we have is the passage we read together a few moments ago. So we look at it through the lens of the whole of Scripture. What does it say about God's character, about his sense of justice and fairness and his sense of grace? But there are other verses that are helpful. So we're going to take a look at those. Romans 1.20, first of all, establishes something, that God's general revelation is clear through Scripture itself. 
It describes us as being without excuse, that God's existence is confirmed just by looking at the beauty of creation. We can't blame our unbelief on a lack of evidence. Romans 1.20 strongly leans towards saying there is sufficient proof of God's existence in the natural order. People can't claim they didn't know. But that requires that somebody be old enough to have the capacity to understand that. That being said, it might also imply that those who are not yet able to appreciate general revelation, infants, very young children, babies in the womb, are they therefore not subject to God's judgment because they do have an inherited sin nature? I mean, they don't have the capacity to respond to the call to profess and believe. And that's one reason why this doctrine was developed. But there are scripture passages that suggest that infants, not children, but infants don't yet have the capacity to really make moral choices. Some would say, well, perhaps so, but they still have that sin nature they inherited from Adam. And that is true, but this is the tension that is at work on this issue, because we've probably all been taught that original sin that we inherit results in us having a fallen sin nature, and we've been taught salvation is through faith in Christ alone. So how do we deal with these two issues when it comes to those who cannot yet make a profession of faith but are born with an inherited sin nature? How do we deal with this? The way you answer this question is going to be heavily shaped by the lens through which you view Scripture. We talked about this last week, about matters of salvation. You have the lens of God's sovereign choice, and you have the lens of whatever sense of human free will and free choice that we believe we have. And how do those two work together? Well, in the next several minutes, you're going to see both of those lenses at work. So let's look at, again at 2 Samuel, that passage we read earlier. And remember, David ended that passage with one statement. He says, I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. When David says, I will go to him, what does he mean with that? Well, I would say it appears King David had some measure of comfort knowing he's going to see his son again. It's the reason why he resumes the normal routine of life after fasting and praying that God would spare his infant son. It means David believed he would be reunited with the child. As I had said a moment ago, this may be one of the strongest biblical passages. It's not an absolute proof text, but it is a strong passage. But here's the point. Why did David believe this? I would suggest to you that David believed that God had sovereignly chosen that baby to salvation. But let's look also at 2 Corinthians 5.10, because it leans more heavily on the idea of man's sense of free will and free choice. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 says, For we all must stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil we've done in this earthly body. That and other passages suggest that being eternally condemned before God is caused by a conscious rejection of Jesus as our Savior. That suggests that salvation has a heavy element of our choice. But whether that's more a matter of free will or God's sovereign will, are infants capable of rejecting Jesus consciously? Are babies in the womb capable of rejecting Jesus consciously? I would say no, they are not. They cannot reject the only cure for sin, 
because they don't have the ability to make such a conscious rejection. And given our understanding of God's character as presented in his word, would he eternally condemn them just on the basis of Adam's sin? After all, they haven't rejected Christ, which is the cure for their sin nature. Now, this shows also, as we talked about last week, the tension between that Calvinist view and what's sometimes called the Arminian view or the concept of man's free will or free choice in choosing Christ. But this also is in part of the history behind the Roman Catholic doctrine known as baptismal regeneration. The idea that young children, by being baptized, it washes away original sin and temporarily covers the child until they're old enough to then follow through the doctrines of the church, which in that case would be completing confirmation and taking First Communion. The Protestant view is more typically that children and unborn babies are covered by God's grace until they have the ability to understand. And Protestant Christians don't all have the same understanding of what really happens in baptism, but most of them do not believe that the water used in baptism is a saving act in and of itself. So let's look at another passage, Jeremiah 1.5. Here's what it says. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. It strongly suggests Jeremiah was, in terms of Paul often uses, elect, predestined to believe while yet in the womb. It's one reason why I do believe in the salvation of those who die in infancy or while they're in the womb. I believe this not because they're free of sin, because they aren't. They have a sin nature. And I don't think we should think that because they've earned forgiveness, because none of us earn forgiveness. I think we should believe this because God has sovereignly chosen them for eternal life and has pre-applied the saving benefits of the blood of Christ to them. And I'll admit, that is a very Calvinistic-sounding argument. But it does explain some things that our emotions does not explain. But here's another passage. Mark chapter 10, verse 13 and 14 where it says people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place their, his hands on them, and his disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, it is true that he was speaking of the fact that coming to faith, we come in that sense with the faith of a child. That is true. But there are also many places in scripture where it speaks. It speaks about babies who were offered to the pagan gods. They were burned in the fire as human sacrifices. God refers to them as, quote, the innocent ones. If God says that little child is innocent, it must be because he has declared them innocent. He has granted them a full pardon from any responsibility for inherited sin through Adam, and that pardon remains in force until they reach an age in which they have the capability to understand their need for Christ. And yes, that point of view leans heavily on the concept of our free will and choice. Remember a few moments ago I told you that we would see both of those viewpoints at work on this particular topic. John MacArthur is a fairly well-known pastor in Southern California. He words it this way. He says, David was comforted in thinking of a future reunion with the baby that died in infancy. 
This is quite a contrast to when David's adult son, Absalom, died. David wept and mourned and could not be comforted because he knew he would never see Absalom again. The difference is profoundly significant here. The scriptures strongly suggest the baby was saved by God's grace. Absalom, who was an adult, was an unsaved man who had rejected God. Now, the the fact that we all eventually face physical death, it's a demonstration that we're all connected to the stain of Adam's sin. Sin entered the world through one man, and through sin came death. And since we all have a sin nature, and since salvation is by faith in Christ only, that's where that concern arose about whether young children and infants were in danger unless something occurs to save them. Now that idea, that historically Roman Catholics were taught, and some Lutherans were taught, is a concept called baptismal regeneration. It suggests that the power of the word works within the water that's applied to the child and temporarily saves them until they're older. It almost has the picture of the the faith of the parents being transferred to the child and placed under that umbrella until they're ready to take their own step of faith. There was a Latin term for that Catholic doctrine. The Latin term was ex opere operato. Ex opere operato. By the way, that is not referring to a former French babysitter who becomes an opera singer. Just wanted to see if you were paying attention. Ex opere operato literally translated to by the work it has worked. It teaches the sacrament of baptism achieves this purpose temporarily until such time as the child is of an age of accountability. There is no fixed age for that. It will vary by child to child. My mother's minister who told her that that baby was in hell wasn't Catholic, but he was Lutheran. And he was one of the Lutherans who held to an ex opere operato viewpoint. They would say to us, we are too emotional on this issue. They would say, we're too soft on the matter of original sin. But one reason I disagree with that is because there are examples in Scripture of infants who were redeemed, saved even in the womb. In addition to that passage from Jeremiah we just read a bit ago, Luke 1.15 speaks about John the Baptist. says he was filled with the Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Hundreds of years before that, David wrote the following about himself in Psalm 22. David wrote the following. He said, You brought me safely from my mother's womb and led me to trust you at my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth. You have been my God from the moment I was born. Now, if God sovereignly chose John the Baptist and David and Jeremiah to salvation while they were still in the move, surely we can believe he has saved others in infancy who were not given the opportunity to grow up and to come to a saving faith. Let's give you another example of a way of looking at this. John Piper was a well-known pastor for years in the Minneapolis area. He suggests that even though we are under the penalty of judgment because of the fall into sin and the sin nature of everything that we have, he suggests that God only carries out that judgment on those who refuse Jesus as their Savior. That's that idea that you have an incurable disease, the cure is freely available. If you reject the cure, chances are you're going to fall to that disease. Piper suggests that while sin condemns us, we're only found guilty when we reject the only cure for it. 
And it has something of an analogy to the Passover, in which the blood of the lamb was painted on the door frames of all the houses, and God's judgment passed over them for that night. Since infants do not have the ability to reject Christ, it therefore suggests that God justly and mercifully places them under the cleansing blood of his son until they do have the ability to accept or reject. And this is the, at least, historical basis for this doctrine of the age of accountability. In England, the famous British preacher Charles Spurgeon worded it this way. He said, It is not that God chooses a baby to salvation because they are going to die in infancy. Rather, he has ordained that only those who have been chosen for salvation will be allowed to die in infancy. And yes, that again looks heavily at God's sovereignty, but I think this is a valid way of answering the question. Babies, young children, and unborn infants who die are among God's elect due to his love and his grace. Let's look at another Brit. Um, George Mueller, evangelist in the 1800s. His wife, Mary, died of rheumatic fever in 1860. And he preached at her funeral. And he had three main points to his message. Point one, the Lord was good and did good in giving her to me, he said. Two, the Lord was good and did good in so long leaving her with me. Three, the Lord was good and did good in calling her home. Mueller starts with the unshakable confidence in the goodness of God, rooted in the saving power of Jesus Christ, and he interprets his life and his loss through the lens of God's goodness. So this doctrine of the age of accountability does have a basis in Scripture. And yet, I believe it's also consistent with God's own character. He is holy and he is merciful. So let's bring this back to my mother. To the three siblings who I've never met. And to the two babies that Terry lost a miscarriage in the mid-90s. Most of us in this room have struggled with this. Either personally or someone you're close to has struggled with this. And when we face doubt and we struggle with an issue like this, we have to come back to two questions. Is God good? And do we trust him for all things? And if we can answer yes to both questions, we can find peace in knowing that those dear wee ones are safe in the loving arms of their Lord. If they didn't make it to draw their first breath, they're safe in his loving arms. If they lived for a short time and died, they're safe in his loving arms. And we should believe this because it seems to be the most consistent with what God has revealed about himself in his word. So there's just one more thing. My mother's doctor. From 1956 until he retired in 1995 was a man named Dr. Morgan. Dr. Morgan delivered me, and he was there in 1963 when my sister died moments before she was to take her first breath. Dr. Morgan was a PK. He was a preacher's kid. He was the son of a Presbyterian minister. He knew my mother was Lutheran at the time. He understood that some Lutherans held the view that was similar to the Roman Catholic view, that a child needs to be baptized to protect them from the penalty of original sin. So let's fast forward to 1995 when my mother had her last annual physical with him before he retired. It took 
They, they took some time to talk about all the years that he had been her doctor and how he delivered me. And then my mom brought up that day in 1963, St. John's Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. She told him of what her minister had told her. Well, my mother said that. Dr. Morgan had a, a stunned look on his face, and it was then that he said to her, Anne, I remember distinctively that night I baptized that baby because I thought that it would bring you a sense of peace. And she said, you never told me that. Well, perhaps he did, and she has no memory of it because of some of the medications that they had given her. She was probably fairly sedated. But here's the reality. Had my mother known that he had baptized that baby, she may have had far less heartache in the years that followed that, but God used that pain to lead my parents and our whole family to what I think is a more biblical understanding of baptism. But there's far more at work. Far more at work here. Had that baby lived, my parents would not have applied for and adopted my sister Janice the next year in 1964. And it's my sister Janice who many years later was my mother's caregiver for eight years from 2002 to 2010 after my mother's many strokes. You see, God does allow things that we don't understand. But he uses them to work things out for good. And through the whole sequence, God provides for those babies in eternity, and he provided for my mother's care for all those years. Now today, both of my parents are in the presence of the Lord, and they have been reunited to those three babies they never met. One day, Terry and I are going to meet those two little ones that we never met. And I believe this because... God is good, he is just, he is merciful, and he brings blessings even, perhaps especially, during times of great heartache. So I hope that this message brings you some peace on this matter. Those wee ones are safe in the presence of the Lord. We will one day see them again or see them for the first time. And until that day, we keep on keeping on. We trust God and we always know that in all ways, and in all things, he is good and he is with us through all the days of our lives until he calls us home or until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord, this is an emotional message. It's a deeply personal message for my family. But I sense that everybody here has an indirect, if not a direct, connection with this struggle. Lord, will you help heal the broken hearts that people have faced? Will you guide us to trust you in all things, especially in moments of deep loss? And help us to recognize, Lord, that you do permit things to happen that in our judgment may not seem fair. But over time, through the healing power of the Holy Spirit, we can see at least your sense of purpose on this. And that you use, you use the tragedies of our lives for good. And you provide for those wee ones that they are safe in your loving arms. Until one day when we see them again, Lord, guide us, comfort us, strengthen our faith. And those who have struggled with this, bring them a sense of peace. And those who have never yet come to believe and have resisted accepting your free gift of salvation. 
that well, it may be free to us, it was not free because the price was very high. Lord, remove the barriers to people coming to faith. To your glory and to your honor, we ask this in your holy name. Amen.